Anxiety and education are both multifaceted subjects that can be managed in many different ways and thought of on a broad spectrum. Every student is different, and quite frankly, everyone suffering from anxiety is a little different too. Welcome to Graduating Anxiety, the podcast that gives you an inside look into the academic challenges that students struggling with anxiety face. I'm your host, Alex Merrill. To manage anxiety and help set up our children for success, we have to understand not just the environmental factors, but the psychological factors that contribute to anxiety. Today, we're speaking with Dr. Ariel Kornblum. She's a New York State licensed psychologist and licensed behavioral analyst who not only treats children suffering from anxiety and depression, but also provides parent management training, school teacher consultations, and executive function coaching. We have Ariel on today's show to discuss treatment methods for anxiety, but also to dig down into the roots of what causes anxiety in our children. Welcome to the show, Ariel. Thanks for having me. Tell us a little bit about your background and about what you do. I am a licensed clinical psychologist and a licensed behavior analyst in New York City. I'm the director of ABA services at Manhattan Psychology Group, where I also see individual families for evidence-based psychotherapy, CBT, executive function training, and parent management training. Tell me a little bit about those three um, things that you mentioned. Sure. So uh, cognitive behavioral therapy is pretty much the most widely recognized gold standard evidence-based intervention for internalizing disorders like anxiety and for depression. And in my practice, I see kids about starting at Around seven years old is a typical age where you can start doing some CBT work up through early adulthood for that kind of therapy. I also see um, a large number of patients for executive function training, which the style that I do it in is sort of a mix of skill building, utilizing some of the CBT methodology as well, because I find that many individuals who struggle with executive function skills, you know, they also have comorbid diagnoses or other barriers in the way. And I find it to be a very psychologically and behaviorally driven therapy. Parent management training is a parenting-based intervention designed for parents of children, both typically developing uh, neurodiverse, neurotypical kids who are struggling with some sort of externalizing behavior at home. I work with parents to develop parenting skill sets to build some structure, routine, and rules into what they're doing at home. I'm really glad you're doing that. I think that's often ignored. I, I feel like with therapy and certainly with education, sort of disconnect the the domestic experience from what they're doing either in school or in their personal lives. So maybe you could just define what does anxiety look like in the students that you see and uh, how does it impact their learning? It's a big question um, with a very multifaceted answer because anxiety often looks different at every stage of life and different amongst like all different age groups. Um, And parents, like any of us, would often conceptualize anxiety as feeling super nervous. We've all felt anxious at one point or another. Um, But in kids, anxiety often looks like externalizing behavior. So I often see a lot of kids in my practice who come through with diagnoses of 
ODD or intermittent explosive disorder. And when you get to the what's really going on there, it's really anxiety driven. So for the younger set, I would say anxiety looks a whole lot more like behavior that might be construed as externalizing or ADHD symptoms even For about middle school, high school age into college, anxiety can look fairly isolating. There are many kids who teeter right around the edge of high anxiety and perfectionism, real type A personalities who are functional to a certain degree. And then they have these big episodes when when they're not. Uh, the anxiety just goes right over the edge and bubbles over and parents will come and say nothing ever happened before. And the anxiety has really always been there. Maybe it was coped with in in a particular way. So Anxiety can look pretty fairly isolating. Uh, It also has a high comorbidity with depression at the older ages. So it can look a lot like social withdrawal and big behavioral changes like that. In your sort of impression, what what do you think sort of causes anxiety? And uh, following up on that too, is it caused by sort of more psychological factors, environmental factors? I believe that Knowledge is certainly power, particularly when you are struggling with some sort of psychological distress. And to that end, I talk a lot with my patients about the basis, the biological basis of anxiety um, and what that means. So obviously there is a biological basis for anxiety. It exists for a reason. If, if humans never felt anxiety, they wouldn't look two ways before crossing the street. You wouldn't do things that put you in danger. There is a very, very clear natural reason for humans to exhibit anxiety. So there is a biological component to it, but there is also a whole lot of environmental components to it. And many people just run anxious. You'll find in families, there's often a common thread of anxiety that's multi-generational. So there are all a whole ton of environmental things as well. Anxiety is there for a reason, but people who struggle with clinical levels of anxiety, their functioning, their day-to-day functioning has started to become greatly impacted by the anxiety they're feeling. And that's when we start to talk about, well, what's causing that and what in the environment might be attributing to that anxiety. But overall, if you polled the general population, there's everyone exhibits a certain degree of anxiety on a specific day. You wouldn't find anyone who had zero anxiety, just wouldn't be human. So uh, what do you think is most accurate understanding of sort of an anxious learner? Are most of them suffering from behavioral disorders that require treatment? Uh, Or is it more common that they're just going through some changes and need some support? I would say typically a parent will start to seek out some sort of therapy for their child when there's some sort of a sustained change in behavior or functioning. You know, the DSM calls for things that are greater than two weeks. Overall, there are people who struggle with anxiety where it has crossed a certain line and it really, really requires some intensive intervention. Then for those people, oftentimes in their life, it will wax and wane and something might come up that will have the anxiety will boil over again. And then those people can have, you know, a few sessions or a booster session or something like that. I mean, there's a big spectrum to it. There are people who suffer with anxiety so badly they can't get out of out of their bed, right? And that clearly warrants a different intervention than a 11th grader who's taking six AP classes and the SATs who's struggling with anxiety, right? So they're, they're different. Do you feel like anxiety is an underdiagnosed? Uh, there's like a lot more, ang- you know, kids with anxiety that are out there that are undiagnosed. 
If so, you know, to what degree do you think that's true? I think that for the school age sect, particularly kids first grade through fifth grade um, and manifesting most significantly towards the end of second and third grade where uh, there are big shifts in academic demand level, there is a lot of misdiagnosis. Kids who get diagnosed as having, you know, some sort of ADHD or a processing disability or, like I said, some externalizing disorder, but it's really anxiety. So I think there is misdiagnosis, particularly when kids don't understand what their body feels like when they're feeling anxious, that they, they don't have the awareness of that yet. Do you feel like there's a taboo about it? I don't think that there's a lot of taboo related to anxiety, particularly now. One of the great things about being alive in 2020, of which there are not so many right now, is that mental health has lost a whole lot of its negative stigma, right? It's really in the forefront. People are really talking about their anxiety and their mental health and taking care of themselves, you know, particularly for older kids, like high school age kids, college age kids who can access that sort of material on social media. I think that there's a there's a power in that. Some kids who struggle with it are the real, really, really type A perfectionist types who just don't want to admit that they're struggling. I think that there's there's a difficulty in that sect, but not overall, not really. So a couple of things that I thought were interesting that Ariel brought up in that first segment. Number one, that there's a biological element to anxiety. I think that's often sort of forgotten, you know, by parents, caregivers, teachers. In a way, we sort of blame ourselves too much, I think, for, you know, what, where the sort of child's mental state is. I think it's worth it to pause and, and note that, you know, some of it is, is unavoidable. And um, I think it's important not to beat ourselves up too much. Generally speaking, what are some of the challenges with learning anxiety that students face today? And uh, what are some of the ways that you treat them? I find that the demands placed on the younger school age sect are just too high. It's not reasonable for kids to read in kindergarten. That is something that is new as of the last four or five years. And I think that when we start with foundations like that, kids who maybe don't learn at that pace can start to exhibit anxiety earlier and earlier on. I have a toddler myself, and I think that there's a lot about play-based philosophies and things like that, but then our kids hit kindergarten and there's nothing that changes about those academic benchmarks, right? It can really start early. And when you can't do what the kids in your class can do or what the teacher's asking you to do, the anxiety can really start to settle in. So now we get to third grade. Now there's state tests. And state testing is, it can be really anxiety provoking for certain kids. So I think we have this whole sect of kids who are not deficient in any way, but maybe they don't learn in the way that they're being taught, right? So that can be really anxiety provoking. I think for older kids, getting into college is so much harder every single year. They understand that every move they make is going to be important to their futures. And that can also lead to a whole lot of anxiety. So I think at the different ages, the way that we're educating and what we are talking about, right? Because 
whether there are colleges out there who are not going to be accepting SATs or things like that, it's still kind of the norm. And, you know, it's either fall in line or don't. And if this is the path to success, then you have to get there. And that can be a really tough hurdle for a lot of kids. And I'll say about the SAT and not having it, what's interesting about that is I think that that's just is such an example of how we have basically programmed a generation to operate solely on numbers. I talked a little bit about executive function skills before, but like executive function skills and soft skills, like interpersonal skills, we don't focus on those skills at all per traditional academia. And those are really the things that are important, right? And now we have a pandemic where you can't even do collaborative-based working, really. That's what makes me worry because they get through high school, they do well. They get through college, they do well. And now they're at their first job and they don't know how to collaborate with someone. I think that... All of that serves to just put kids in a more anxiety-producing environment more often. Your approach to treatment from a collaborative perspective, and you work closely with parents, caregivers, and school teams, been noted that you provide parent coaching. You told us a little bit about that earlier, actually. Can you just talk about the importance and the role of adults and caregivers in managing a child's anxiety? Maybe, Maybe one thing you could talk about there, too, is, you know, if you do feel like you have a child with anxiety, undiagnosed or diagnosed, what are some things you can do to to help? Those parents, what they have is pediatricians, right? And pediatricians don't really have all the information uh, that parents might need. So it's important for them to have some good foundational recommendations. And the good thing is, is that they exist in the world and parents can definitely get them. I approach treatment from a collaborative perspective in the same way that we sort of look at kids' development and involvement of parents over the years and how that sort of wanes over time. I see treatment from that same perspective. So younger kids who come through my office, I do not see a patient kid and just the kid. If the kid is under the age of 10, I have parents uh, either split sessions or separate sessions during the week. Older kids can sometimes manage their own treatment with some minimal parental involvement, but parents are with their kids a lot of the time. They can really make a dent and make a difference in some of some subclinical anxiety or even some clinical anxiety. So when I have parents in, the whole first couple of sessions is we talk about cycles of anxiety. What is the difference between enabling anxiety and accommodating anxiety? And how do you support your child in moving towards their goals, which is to conquer their fears? So the most important thing that I always tell parents is you have to focus on the process and not the outcome, right? Your child is so, so afraid of climbing something at the playground. Okay, right? You feel as a parent, you really, really, really want them to be able to do this. So parents will often focus on getting them there, right? Like, let's let's get them there without stopping to praise what we call approach behavior. So anytime you approach something that is anxiety provoking, it is an approach behavior. And that behavior needs to be called out, acknowledged, recognized, and praised. So if you take put one foot on this climbing wall, I'm going to say, excellent job trying. I see how you did that. And that's it. And then we walk away. And over time, the hope is that you shape the behavior and your child learns that it's a good thing to approach things that are scary. And it's a good thing to try. And from a parenting perspective, too. I mean, I think I think a lot of times it's about 
parental expectations of themselves as a parent, they like insert themselves in the process. I certainly feel like I do that. Yes. Parents often insert themselves in their kids' academic processes specifically, right? So parents will feel that grades are a reflection on them, right? And particularly, I have been doing a lot of work with parents throughout this pandemic on that, who are parents who have become teachers and them saying like, I can't do it. The teacher asked me to do it. I can't do it. It means I'm an awful parent, right? And I think that cycle can be really it's damaging to yourself as just an individual, but it's also not great for your child in terms of getting to them where they need to be either. So if your child is really scared about a test and studies super hard and puts in the effort, my recommendation would be is to praise that effort and don't talk about the grade. If the grade is a hundred, that's great. If the grade is a 50, you'll figure it out. But the important part is, is that the study skill was there and that the effort was there. And when we talk about big things like grit and resiliency, that's where it comes from, like getting up again and trying again. So that's really important in anxiety work. Of course, uh, being mindful of confidentiality, I definitely wanted to ask you this. What are, what are some of your greatest success stories? I previously had a patient who was a good student, But she wanted to be better. She was um, pretty type A kind of a personality. And she had a whole lot of anxiety about participating in class and getting an answer wrong. That was like the worst. It was a mix of social anxiety and just like anxiety about performing. Anything that she handed into a teacher, she really like she never was late on anything. She was not like the in your face participating kind of kid that we, you know, is the front row raising your hand. But she was never late with anything. She was sort of a fly under the radar. I don't want anyone looking at me. I'm just going to do well kind of a kid. And the participation in class over the years, over the years that I saw her actually really started to hurt her grades. Um, And it became a significant issue in her high school application process. So we worked really hard on a real solid CBT style anxiety-based work, which is rooted in exposure therapy. And eventually she was able to get there. Um, And she set small goals for herself and she tried and she put in the effort and the motivation. And she was able to get into the high school she wanted to get into. It was a nice story for that moment in time because this was something so small that was just really holding her back and it was really rooted in anxiety. I think it's a a tendency of parents to get sort of too personally involved in the psychological state of their children, especially in the pandemic environment when you're confronted with it every day. And it's all from a it's all from a good place. It's from that motivation of I want to do best for my child. I don't want to I don't want them to suffer. I don't want them to worry. Again, I think there's sort of some some backfiring effects to that. And certainly, when I try to recommend books for my uh, for my daughter, who's a voracious reader, I mean she <laughs> she reads libraries and libraries full of books. But if I try to recommend books to her, she immediately shuts down. It's like absolutely not. That feels innocent. It feels like well, I'm just recommending a book, but. I mean, I think to her, she's very sensitive to what I'm feeling and my expectations for her. So what does the future of education look like for students with anxiety? How has the global pandemic sort of changed that in your mind? I think the pandemic has changed a lot of things for kids with anxiety. Um, If we're talking particularly about that subset, first of all, 
when we talk about anxiety, we talk about cycles of avoidance. So anxiety lives in this fun place of avoidance. So if you can avoid what makes you anxious, fine, you don't have anxiety, right? That's perfect. So for kids with social anxiety, I don't have to go to school. This is the best. Um, <laughs> oh, it's like the ultimate avoidance. And like, I actually, right. we've, you know, in our practice, we see a, a good chunk of kids with social anxiety. And that was really everyone's experience across the board was just like, okay, there, there's nothing to really work on now because you're, you're at home and you're, you're happy. There are a large number of kids who struggled with uh, distractibility in their classrooms there is a definitely a number of kids who learn better, not with like zooming into their school that's half in session and half not, but with a real a real homeschool curriculum um, that's being, you know, I have, I'm a psychologist as well as a behavior analyst. And in the, in the ABA field, uh, we talk a lot about direct instruction and, and the best ways of teaching. And it's, it's a fascinating place to read some of the research, but there are actually a number of, of these programs that target that and, and kids who can get themselves in front of a computer and who can sit and move through stuff, they might actually learn better online. So I think if anything, I hope that it opens up the door for understanding that different kids with different learning styles might actually benefit from more data-driven online resources. So I think that that might be a good thing to come out of this. I hope that it allows us as a community, the education field, to reconsider some of those academic benchmarks and maybe be a little bit more flexible on them. Because I keep hearing a lot about falling behind, falling behind, falling behind, and falling behind from some arbitrary thing seems like maybe we could open up that conversation. Well, I think they're falling behind in socio-emotional learning. I mean, why not focus on some of those benchmarks, especially since you know, success has been so closely tied in research to socio-emotional learning. I think that as a, uh, with a lot of this, it there doesn't seem to me to be a whole lot of consideration of kids' mental health and the social-emotional development that happens in school. I am starting to feel like that was sort of like left out out of some of these bigger conversations. And I find that to be I think that will be extremely damaging for certain kids of this generation in the future. I think that they are missing critical and pivotal moments in time for their social emotional development. And we already know from all the research that the kids who are right at the beginning of college, like college age kids, upper high school age kids are the most isolated generation to ever exist. We already know that. I think that not bringing into consideration, like I've consulted with some schools on their remote learning things and I keep pushing for, can you take out one of the electives and just let the kids chill in like a Zoom together and talk? Can we do that? Schools also feel the pressure to show parents that they're doing a lot of educational type stuff because when when you work at a school and you've been in a school, like you know how big of a portion of the day is learning. Like it's less than half, probably way less than half, right? So now it's like, okay, the whole day is now learning and that's not right either. Oh God, yeah. There was a teacher that I knew. He was like, well, you can't learn on Mondays and Fridays because Mondays you're still recovering from the weekend. Fridays you're still you're looking forward to it. First thing in the morning, they're still asleep. At the end of the day, they're thinking about where they're going next. So he was, he had this theory basically that there was like, 
a six hour chunk of time, like between Tuesday and Thursday that like wasn't right before lunch because they're hungry then and they're not learning that, that they actually do some, some amount of learning. So I think that's probably about right. It's probably about accurate. And it really is the <laughs> truth. Like for anyone who's worked at a school, you know. If you wanted uh, parents to take one thing away from uh, this discussion, what, would, what do you think that would be? I think that parents don't give their kids enough credit in terms of their ability to do what they need to do. And my biggest advice for parents would be to acknowledge and schedule in time for your children to decompress where it's a real thing. Like this is the hour in which we are doing nothing. And it's not electronics time. It's not like FaceTime time. It's just sort of like we're taking a break, especially if your child is on Zoom school the entire day, taking a break from that. And for, for parents to understand that doing that is just as important to their success as doing the homework is because we, again, also know that homework, homework has nothing to do with any sort of academic progress. And I think that the other thing is for parents, the other like little note that I'll give is for parents to really make an effort to focus on the process and not the outcome and to really validate and acknowledge where your child is, where their, where their strengths are, where their challenges are, and to really see those challenges and your role in, in them. Not like you can just snap your fingers and it will change overnight, but in this idea of helping your child to evolve and change and to meet their goals. So I think that can be really hard uh, for a lot of parents to to see their child struggle and for parents to know like, that's okay. There's a way that you can support them. Oh my God. Yeah. That might be the single most uh, important thing in parenting is to sit on your hands and watch your kid like struggle and, and like really experience like true adversity. Um, and God, is that hard now? Because that just feels so real that adversity does. I just want to say thank you uh, so much to uh, to you, Ariel, for um, being here. That, that was actually really, really interesting. I really enjoyed uh, listening to what you had to say about the kids and, and the issues that are facing them today in particular. Yeah, thanks very much for having me. This was great. So based on my interview with Ariel, here are a couple of key points that stuck out to me. She was pretty emphatic about at least for younger school kids, the expectations being dissonant with what a kid is capable of, especially academically. She mentioned the case of kindergartners being expected to read. You know, that strikes me as something that's sort of fixable in our education system, particularly in developing a more acute awareness of the effect of social emotional skills, which have been proven over and over again in research um, to be intimately you know, linked to success. And I think that's kind of what all parents are after um, to one degree or the other. You know, from a parental standpoint, certainly if you, you know, see that your child is being sort of confronted with expectations that are way beyond their sort of ability level, lower your expectations, I mean, for that child, lower your expectations for yourself, maybe consider that it's not that it's not the child that it's not you that the system is actually more demanding than is reasonable secondly ariel was pretty emphatic about one one of the ways to address this really which is to focus on the process and not the outcome as she says praising the kid on what their process is versus getting some sort of result like learning to read for example 
these are stressful times. I mean, these are very difficult times and yet the education has to go on. So that's why I think sort of concrete approaches, things are very clear. It's like focus on just, just do this. I think is really important because we honestly, we just don't have the time for the complexity of thought. Lastly, I think, you know, the point that she brought up about school not being about learning is pretty critical. I mean, certainly high on my mind. Um, and I think, you know, the Zoom education that everyone's experienced has been a big reminder of to kids and to parents of, you know, all of the things that you actually get at, at a school that are not actual academics, which again, I mean, she mentioned that the ones with anxiety are sort of celebrating, particularly with social anxiety, because they don't have to address that. But I mean, to think that that's not going to come up again for them at all, I think is a little premature. Again, I think it's really incumbent on educators um, and on parents to teach those skills and to make those a priority. Thanks for listening to Graduating Anxiety, the podcast that helps caregivers of anxious learners overcome obstacles to find academic success and build continuously happy lives. If you liked this episode, be sure to give us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. I'm your host, Alex Merrill. See you next time.